Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. We are live. Hey, Kedma, thank you so much for joining on Dub's podcast, Connection Loop. Uh, we're psyched to be here. We're going to talk about something that is challenging, it's uncomfortable, but it's a reality and it's something that's so essential for starting a business, uh, at least for mm-hmm. most of us. So Kedma O, oh, please let's get into this. If you could just start with a short bio and then let's get into the topic. Yeah, super simple. I'm a fifth generation entrepreneur, which is quite rare. And I have spent the last 20 years helping entrepreneurs, everyday inventors, hustlers, just try to find access funds. Mm. Um, I spent 15 years on and off for the Small Business Administration, and I'm considered a national funding expert. But my work really began in 2001 when I faced bankruptcy. I had to file bankruptcy, having left a difficult relationship. And two weeks later, I received a credit card from Capital One for 200 bucks. And I remember the moment as if it was yesterday. I was literally sitting there wondering why I was getting the credit card. But I remembered as a young girl, I used to play a game called Monopoly. We've all played Monopoly. And what I know about Monopoly is if you're on the board and you're totally broke, as long as you can pass go, you're going to get $200 from the bank. Hmm. That was the moment I said that the universe has just played me back into the game. And I spent 15 years obsessively looking at grants and resources and funds for everyday Americans who had a dilemma like me, and I reverse engineered how to find money. And in 2019, McGraw-Hill picked up my book called Target Funding, and here I am today. Amazing, amazing. What a, what a story. So what would you say the biggest challenge that people are, are facing right now? Is it just access to capital, or is it just not having their stuff prepared to get investors excited? Um, well, I, I come from the world of realizing that investors are maybe not the right avenue. And I think access is always an issue, but you can't access what you don't know. So I always like to say there's a funding party happening every day of the week. Mm. Then people say to me, I want to be invited to the party. Well, you can't be invited unless you know there's a party. (laughs) So you Mm. can't get access unless you know where the money is. So really having someone who navigates and shows you where the funds are and then you applying for the money. Um, secondary to that would be having a phenomenal idea, but I've seen a lot of funds get, you know, passed to people who don't have great ideas, but they're consistent. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. You know, I, I've gone through this process, um, on many, many levels. I've gone it, gone on it from the angel route. I've gone it from Mm -hmm. the self-funding route. I've gone it from the credit card roulette route and also from the venture capital route. And I will say this, my experience has been that. If you are in a situation where you're desperate for capital, you can pretty much you can pretty much exclude every option because winning the winning the lottery is not is not really a viable strategy, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that the the idea, the execution, the team, the the infrastructure, the vision, those are some of the things that I always encourage people to first mm-hmm. work on before they try to access capital because if they don't have those things in line, then it's going to be a very challenging thing. The other thing that I think about is opportunity costs. I'd love to get your take on this. Sure. When you go try to raise funds, when you're pitching investors, when you're making the calls and doing the drives and you have your spreadsheet and you're going down the list, getting mm-hmm. rejected, you know, what how do you deal with opportunity costs of not selling 
trying to figure out a way to sell a product or service from day one so that you can self-fund. Okay, so let's let's make a quick distinction for the audience. I live and breathe in the grant world. You do not have to have a full out fledged business plan to get grants. You need to understand that grants are based on mission and I live and breathe in getting grants, which means funds you don't have to repay back for businesses, which is very different than raising funds. So I wanna separate the two because we sometimes think that raising funds is where it needs to be and it's absolutely wrong. So I'll give you an, a, a real life scenario. In 2008, I purchased my own office and I had to put down 6%, which typically is very, very low when you're looking at commercial space. But my interest has now been fixed now since 2008 at 0.04%. That's less than half a percent interest. That was not about raising capital. That was about understanding that there, there were market tax credits that were set aside for specific demographics and I knew how to get the jackpot. So I just wanna make it very clear that if you are listening to this and you're not investor eligible, it doesn't mean the game is over and it doesn't mean you have to go back and figure out how to build a team. It just means that maybe we need to look at grants. Now, second comment you brought up was how do we look at it, especially if it's product driven. I live in the invention space. I actually am a board member for the United Inventors Association that oversees every inventor club in the country. We work very closely with the US Patent Office. If you came to me today and said, Kedma, I have a product, it's an invention, I know it's going to um, you know, do great, I just don't have $10,000 to pay an attorney, I'm not gonna send you to an investor. That's ridiculous. What I'm going to first do is look at what your income base is. And in fact, if you are broke or very, very low income, you would be eligible for a program through the US Patent Office called the Patent Pro Bono Program. I would put you through that program. And that program is the equivalent of getting a $10,000 grant. So everything I do is truly targeted. It is not a one, one fit, you know, one person fits one thing. It's very, very, very targeted. So I just wanted to make that distinction. Understood. Got it. And, and this is a realm that I think the vast majority of entrepreneurs don't really think about. This is not something when, mm -hmm. when entrepreneurs, at least the ones that I spend my time with, we don't think about how, what grants are out there, what is available from the government, what type of incentives exactly. are there, uh, minus stuff from the present day through, through SBA and whatnot. Correct. Uh, so how can we go uh, educate us a little bit on that research process? Where do we start? How do we figure Absolutely. out what we're eligible for? Yeah, great question. Everything that you're eligible is unique to your variables. Let me explain. Mm. Okay. If I was working with a, a business owner in New York City, and that business owner said, I am running a technology company that is focused on building communication platforms that are focused on bettering um, communication for people who are, let's say, on the autism spectrum, okay? And I need funds to scale that up. And this person has to, not only is based in New York, but is a entrepreneur that identifies as a minority, let's say Hispanic. I would be listening and paying attention to all those variables because 
we work with 20 plus variables to pull out actual targeted funds. So in that example, I would look at funds in the state of New York, in the county they're in, in the city they're in. I would look at then funds um, from an industry, technology funds. I would look at grants from the federal government. I would specifically maybe target um, maybe Department of Commerce through our SBIR program. I would look at funds identified for the Hispanic community. You see, so when you ask me, where do we find it? There are 20 variables. It could be geographic, it could be demographic, it could be industries, it could be phase, it could be whether you're in the R&D level. Everything is targeted. And when you, if you get a chance to look at my book, we spent three years, three years putting that book together because we had identified over 300 resources. So you can literally bypass my consulting, <laughs> get my book and literally follow my plan because we built it out as if you didn't want to talk to me and you want to take all my secrets, you could actually do it that way. So the book is built out by variable, so you know exactly how to find funds specific to you. Mm. And let's let's talk about your book a little bit. Uh, target funding. Um, mm -hmm. I I know I know of your book. Please please take us through that. What can we expect to learn uh, if we do read that text? Yeah. If you want motivational hype, if you want to feel inspired, don't get my book. I am inspirational, but my book is very practical. If you want to know where the money is, that's why you want to get my book. It is literally an encyclopedia. I, I am the actual voice for my book, but I would suggest you, you actually get the, the actual book because when people are driving and listening to my voice, there is so much resources that they have to literally stop their car and write it down. And then they end up getting my written book anyway. So what you or, will or expect, they, or they get into a car accident. Oh no, let's hope not. <laughs> but but what you're gonna what you're gonna really see is chapter by chapter, we've identified funds specifically by variable. So let's say you're an inventor, you're gonna go to the innovator innovation section. If you are identify as a women, woman, you're gonna go to the woman funding section. If you identify um, that you are focused on um, creative ventures. So every single chapter talks about resources and we highlight stories of companies that actually receive them. You, any, any company or any organization that got into our book was vetted by our team and McGraw Hill before they ever got it qualified. That's why it took us three years. There is no hype here. This is the real deal. So people look at the book and they think, oh my goodness, there's so much information. The first chapter is really about why I do what I do. And we talk about the opportunity because while I have a background in finance, the best gift I was given was filing bankruptcy because I am a product of my own book. So what you're going to see is if you go through the book is you're going to see immediate resources you could tap into. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, Target funding available on Amazon and any bookstore near you. That's awesome by Kedma O. Amazing, amazing resource there. Um, okay, so let's let's get into this idea of of opportunity cost because this this is where I live. Okay, I live in the realm where let's if you can, 
yeah, if you can go and you can start a business, the dream, the dream startup strategy for me is this. Okay. And I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've, I've been around the rodeo. I've, I've done <laughs> sure. a lot, a lot of failures. And th this comes with failure, not with success. That's where this learning, yeah, sure. these learnings come from. So, so the first thing is how can you sell on day one? Okay. That's the first thing mm -hmm. I think about. Okay. The second thing mm -hmm. I think about is what is the opportunity cost if you go and try to raise funds? Now I'm going to apply this. I've never thought about grants in the, in the past. Um, I, I, unless I was in a nonprofit, I'm ignorant. I get it. So I'm learning, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but I will say this, that I have never thought about, about that in the past. And this, the, the third thing I would say very quickly is that how, what, what, is it that I can do to sell? And if I spend my time right now on on chasing money, what? How will that result in failure in in the future? Right. So for me, where I feel comfortable is developing developing a business. I'm the CEO of a SaaS company. It takes a long time to build technology. Yep. Years, in fact, it takes a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. And I've mm -hmm. been through that process. But from day one we were selling and I took the revenue and I invested back into the business and it was just a rinse mm -hmm. and repeat situation. Awesome. And we never, mm -hmm. we never chased any money per se. Now I know that might sound elitist. I know I might sound lucky. I know it sounds maybe bad, but that is the reality. And I feel most comfortable in that realm. How can sure. we balance seeking external capital from grants, from investors, but at right. the same time still sell and make the money so that we control our domain? So you look, customers are the king and queen. We all know this, right? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have something that the, the consumers want, it's not going to work. I remember a, uh, a few years back where I had a quick story, then I'll respond back. I had a, an end, uh, a couple come and meet with me. Very smart couple. Both of them were in software. One was uh, uh, an engineer. And they had developed a product that was basically a modified diaper bag that could be also used for uh, your computer. And they spent over $100,000 in R&D and they couldn't understand why nobody wanted the product. Well, here was the product. It was basically a one-stop shop diaper bag that you could put all the diapers in and you can also have your laptop. And I said, well, do you have done a test on this? They had actually not done any beta test with their customers. And the reality is, is when we stepped in, we knew already that the customers were not going to do it. I'm a mom of three. There is no way I'm going to put dirty diapers into the same bag that I have my laptop. Not going to happen, right? So the first thing you want to, of course, do is you want to have something that can be tested. Having said that, if we're going to look at the idea of fundraising and we're trying to go after venture capital, even in that case, I'm going to tell clients to target it. So let me let me give you a reality check on that because I think you bring up an excellent point. I happen to be an investor. I'm an accredited investor, but I only work through one organization. I work through a national organization called Pipeline Angels. Pipeline Angels is recognized nationally for women, accredited women investors who invest in women businesses. That's all we do. We don't invest in men businesses. <laughs> In businesses, So it's very, very targeted, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we are going to look at raising funds, we still have to be very specific on where we're going to raise and who we're going to go after. Because even in venture capital world, 
it's very, very niched, whether it's mm. tech focused, whether it's demographic focused, whether they're focused on restaurants, whether they're focused on a certain state, it's still very, very niched. Mm. So yeah. in my case, I'm very niched, you know, um, our program only deals with women. It's amazing. Pipeline Angels travels, you know, now they're on, of course, Zoom, but they traditionally travel around the country and they let women pitch and it's, it's incredible. So yeah. that's an example of, yeah, I'm happy if people want to raise money, but even in that case, I'm still going to have them target where they're going to get the money so they get a better chance because I'm not going to invest in something that I don't have no, that I, I don't have knowledge in. It's mm. not going to happen. You know, I little comedic, comedic, uh, break here. Um, it's there's going to be a day once where people are going to say we only invest in men owned businesses. I know, be I know, <laughs> because because men are going to be the minority because women, women are going to take over. They're going to be president of the United States. They're going to be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and poor little men, little us, you know, male or or even maybe some combination of non-binary. We're going to be like, yes. what about us? Kenma, what about us? We have My a little... husband says it all the time. My husband, he's white, he's Caucasian. He says, what about me? Why, are we, why don't we get any? He says to me all the time, why can't you get funds for people like me? I'm like, I don't make up the rules. I just find where they are, okay? I don't, right. I don't decide whether you're a minority or not. I just follow the follow the formula. But you're right. You're right. You know, there isn't a lot of funds for white Caucasian males. Um, and there's a reason for that. But yeah, right. Um, so, you know, I mean, when the Black Lives Matter um, uh, movement happened, I called it. I said it within the first day. I said, there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars set aside for Black Lives Matter entrepreneurs. And I was right. So there is so much money now set aside from that on multiple levels because people want to invest in Black Lives Matter and support uh, entrepreneurs that are uh, operated, you know, that um, identify with that demographic. So social social changes does impact the money that is set aside for those communities. Mm. You know, the one of the things that really helps me as as a businessman to understand the larger ecosystem of business politics is this idea that you know altruism nepotism these these things there's there's a there's a very murky separation between these two things right and when one thinks well why would a company want or why would an individual maybe a high net worth individual or a company have a grant for something like this, where they want to invest into minority groups, right? And you might think, well, you know, one might think that, hey, listen, the reason why, why they're doing that is because it's social good and they want to give back. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you speak to their accountant or if you speak to your accountant or a CFO or whatnot, it's going to be very obvious that there are massive financial benefits for people to be altruistic and to actually give back and to make donations. And I think that it liberates entrepreneurs to think about that because they don't think mm -hmm. then that I I am just receiving something. I'm actually giving something back to them. I'm giving them a financial vehicle so they can write off an expense mm -hmm. on their taxes at the end of the year. Uh, and I think that that's liberating. I think that that's very important to note. Uh, please speak to that. Like, what should we know? How can we learn about that? So you're you're referring to what we call marketing cause related marketing is hot you have to be authentic I've been in cause related marketing for decades mm. if you look at anything I do on LinkedIn 
I build on karma dollars. People trust me because they know that I'm the real deal. And I'll call people on it all the time if I think there's BS happening. So the idea that organizations that are going to do this altruistic, of course, there's a benefit. When Verizon went ahead and said, we're going to provide a $10,000 grant for businesses going through COVID, um, it wasn't it wasn't the amount of money that they put in that really mattered. It was the amount of emails that they received from applications that people did. And it was astronomical how many people applied for those opportunities, knowing that there was just a limited amount of money, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if I wanted to do that same thing, I could with target funding, I could set aside $10,000 as a grant with my organization and open it up for applications. And I guarantee you, I would probably get 50,000 plus applications mm -hmm. for that, right? So yes, I'm doing good, but it is also, let's just be honest, it is a opportunity to leverage your marketing, to build your brand and to do the right thing. It is profitable to do the right thing. It is mm -hmm. profitable to do the right thing. Let's just be honest about it, okay? Um, entrepreneurs and business owners are very savvy and they're going to make choices on where to put their dollars if they feel you're doing the wrong thing. So, yeah, to put money behind that, cause-related marketing, I'm all for it. Okay, so this is interesting. You bring up something which I think is so profound, and it's this idea of abundance mentality, right, in, in corporate, right? When you do the right thing, it is profitable, okay? What does mm -hmm. that mean? It means it's multiple levels where that exists. It exists at the internal level, investing into your team, the team resources, you know, fair work-life balance. But then it also exists within the external realm is giving mm -hmm. back into the community, right? Giving back to planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this idea of it being profitable in the financial good. How can we get out of a mindset of that scarcity mindset where I need to conserve, I need to keep resources close to me and not give to them because if I do that, then I'm just gonna lose my resources. How can we get out of that mindset and say, I'm gonna invest into my people, I'm gonna invest into the world, and as a result, I'm gonna build my brand and people are gonna connect to that. Yeah. Boy, you're talking about a big problem here. You're talking about poverty mentality, which is a mind, mm -hmm. mind shift. I always say this, my good friends uh, at True Living, um, at Michael, I say, if, if people show up and want to get counsel from me and they have a mindset issue, I send them away. I'm like, I don't have time for the mindset issue. I'm, I have time for to execute and make money. But mindset issue is a big deal because, you know, people are born with this idea of scarcity and lack of. And yet, if you study um, how marketing truly is, if you go back to the statistics, let's take marketing and recession. If you study all the technical papers, Back in when we've had multiple recessions outside of this, companies who actually spent money during the recession made more money than companies mm. who didn't. Yes. And in fact, I'm the vice president of coaching for one of the largest uh, coaching companies for the home service industry. We work with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of everyday entrepreneurs who are in the home service industry. We basically are the back-end MBA program for essential workers in the home service industry. And I'll tell you right now, for anybody who's coaching with me, when COVID hit and they came to me and said, coach, do I stop my spending? I said, no, you're going to raise it, raise the fire lift it up and they made so much money why because their competitors stopped spending and mm. they were the only ones on the platform mm. 
They were the only ones that people were listening to, right? People were at home and they raised it and they made a killing. So you have to understand your investment in your VIP customers is your employees. Those are your customers. If you're not taking care of them, you don't deserve to make money. <laughs> That's the bottom line. And if you look at it again, back to research, every time someone leaves your company, if they're leaving you and you haven't done a lot of value into them, you're losing on average $15,000 per person who leaves you. Who here has enough in their kitty for that to happen, right? So I'm a huge proponent about investing in your VIP customers, which are your employees, and building your culture. Huge proponent on that. And I can go into a lot, but that's, that's kind of the, the taste of it. I, I love this, this conversation so much. I am such a proponent of what you're talking about. And I, <laughs> I went through this mindset shift. I, I literally, it took me a half a decade. And it probably comes in part from uh, being the child of immigrant, an immigrant father, right? Immigrant mm -hmm. parents who uh, my father didn't have money growing up. He right. would study on the street and use the street lights. Well, that was a story he told me. There was no there was no snow in, in New Delhi mm -hmm. where he was, so he couldn't give me the snow uphill two ways. But his story was the the street light, and that's where he studied, and I believe that story. And I remember growing up watching him manually water all the plants in our backyard yeah. because he didn't want them to yeah. die. And I said, why don't you just buy a sprinkler system? And he says, I enjoy this. And I went through that, and out of massive respect for him, I went through that idea of shifting myself, and I still I still suffer from it sometimes, but right. shifting from scarcity to abundance. And I will tell you, on the coming on the other side of it, it feels good. It feels good to invest into people. It feels good to double down in a recession. I don't know if we were in a recession. I, probably not, statistically speaking, numerically. Yeah. But it feels good to, when everyone else is kind of retracting, to actually double down. So yes. I, I love that. I think it, it, I am a proponent. Yes. I am a testimonial for it. It works. Um, I want to shift the convo a little bit to this idea yeah. of turning turning fundraising into marketing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I am a big proponent, and I know you are massively, because you're a superhero, <laughs> of taking your life and documenting yeah. it and turning yeah. it into content. So no, the, yes. the beautiful thing about this strategy is that no matter what you do, you win, because at least you get content out there. Yeah. So, what I want to present here is this idea of a fundraising campaign, which turns into a marketing campaign. So here's an example that I'm looking at. My favorite yep. band, Radiohead, they have a crowdfunding campaign. They do not yep. need money. They do not need money. They do very well. But there's mm -hmm. some organizations here, some nonprofits that are giving away a guitar, a Fender Stratocaster 1975 badass guitar. So what's amazing about this is that not only are they raising funds, but they're also marketing the nonprofits that are associated with this. And not to mention Radiohead gets a little mm -hmm. bit more play. So how can we turn, let's see, what's the mix here? How can we turn our fundraising needs, go to some of the platforms that are available, and then turn those into a content opportunity and then a branding play all at the same time, trifecta. You want me to answer that right now? This is like a this is like a brainstorming tank conversation. We, we, we need Bring time it. on this. You, I'm sorry. What is that? I mean, listen, you're like, you, you want me to answer that tough question? Here's what I would say. 
I would say that um, it's very lonely on the t at the top. And if you can create an opportunity where by you leveraging your influence, you help other organizations level theirs, they all work together. So I'm gonna give you an example and then I'll suggest something to think about. I study a lot of industries and how industries come together. And if you think about the dairy industry, the dairy farmers, the dairy farmers are highly competitive. Why? Because they have their, their farms, their, 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 their land, they have their, their cattle, and they're constantly competing for subsidies and they're constantly competing for opportunities to get it. And so it's very rare where you have that cutthroat that competitors would come together. Except there was a campaign where the dairy farmers came together. Why? Because the dairy farmers knew that there were there was new uh, competition coming into that space with soy milk, hemp milk, <laughs> especially from where I am in Oregon, every other other kind, right. And what was the campaign they did? Got milk. Got, got milk. Got milk, right? Every, I, I didn't even say the campaign. I was about to tell you what were the two words that they used in the campaign and you had it. That's a beautiful, beautiful example of competitors coming together to champion an industry. So if I was doing the campaign, I would do the same thing. I would say, my goal is to open up the conversation around target funding, to open up the conversation for access. And by doing that, we're gonna help raise awareness and maybe raise funds mm -hmm. for people who may not be the likelihood of that, but we're gonna do it in a very strategic manner. We're gonna do a campaign around this because I work in the business world, but I come from government and I come from nonprofit. And I'm gonna tell you, the problem that we're talking about is not just a business problem. There are policies set aside at the government that prohibit or make it very, very difficult for people to make money. So quick example, and then I'll be quiet. If you have a disability in the US, Okay, there are 54 million people who have a disability and people don't really care until you become disabled or someone else does, right? So it's like the only, the only minority group in the world that you can get invited at any day of the week, right? You wake up, you get into a car accident, something happens, all of a sudden you just joined our group, right? However, if you are getting social security Social Security sets it up and designs it in such a way that they don't want you to make money or they don't want you to make a lot of money because if you do make enough money, then they're gonna threaten to take away your Social Security benefits, okay? That's an example of policy that if I was running for office, I would go after Social Security because I can't understand the fact that if someone needs a medical thing, why are you gonna prohibit them from making as much money as they want? Right. But those are policy and very complicated things that most people would not understand or not have an, uh, you know, an awareness of. So my point is, if we're going to go and campaign for something like this, we'd have to look at the bigger picture and who needs to be involved. Mm. So interesting. Okay. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Well, There's, a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot that we need to buy There's your book. We need to, we need to start to with target target. We need to start with your book. <laughs> That's the place we need to start. Um, give me some links. Um, where can we learn about you on LinkedIn, website? Oh, yeah. Well, LinkedIn, I know, because look, I'm the only one who wears a cape. So if you find anyone else who wears a cape, uh, I wear them on stage and my all my capes are customized. So you can just find me on LinkedIn, Kedma O, or just Key and Small Business Superhero. Um, and then you can also go onto my website, just Kedma O. There I am. 
there I am. And actually that video I just posted because people who don't know about my story and why I wear a cape sometimes mock the cape until they hear my story and then they feel like crap because <clears throat> the true story is that I, um, I lived a superhero life. I went into hiding for five years because I had a villain who was trying to kill me. And, uh, and through my, my own, you know, my own kind of discovery, I, I believe in the idea of really helping people find their own. That's a cool video. Yeah, that was when I went and surprised us, uh, one of my clients at the grand opening. So you can find me on kedmao.com. You can find me on targetfunding.com. You can key me in Google. There's only one Kedma. So um, yeah, whatever, whatever works. Yes. Kedma and last name is spelled O-U-G-H. Yes. Amazing, yes. Kedma. Well, Tons of gratitude for your Thank time, you. for your insight, for your thought leadership. You are a superhero. Thank I cannot you. wait to see your next video on LinkedIn. Thanks Thank again. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. S stick around for some notes. And Absolutely. I'll see you soon.